Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good morning, guys. We doing okay? Okay, a few of you. Rowdy bunch. Let's get to work. Hey, if you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing forward in our journey through the gospel of Mark. Uh, Today we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 18, down to chapter 3 and verse 6. And uh, the passage that was just read was the last little section we'll look at today, so we'll get there eventually. Um, I'm really glad to be with you guys. I love getting to come out to Shawnee uh, every month or every other month or so. And so if if this is the first time uh, that I'm here with you, again, it's a privilege to share God's word with you. Let's pray, and then we'll see how God would shape our time. Sound good? All right. Father, we come before you today and we ask that you would help us step into Psalm 46 and verse 10, cease from striving and know that I am God. All of us bring striving in here. All of us bring angst and anxiety in here. And Father, I pray that right now you'd help us to obey that passage, to cease from striving, and to know that you are God, that you'll be exalted in the earth, that you'll be exalted among the nations. We ask that you'd even be exalted in this room. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, do you guys remember uh, back in elementary school, math class, story problems. Do you remember these things? Like little like little equations that were given to you, little uh, math questions that were given to you, but they were nestled in a little story, little scenario. You remember these things? They were nearly the end of my educational journey, right? Like I struggled with these things so hard, I couldn't do them. I continually locked up. I would always get caught up in the scenario and entirely miss the actual math question that was being asked. I just got caught up in all the details of the story itself, and I would get so confused as to even where to go next. I remember my mom tried to help me with these. Uh, and we sit down at the dinner table, and there's one in particular that I'll never forget. I'm 37 years old, and I still remember this, nine years old, Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. That's the point of what I'm telling you about, right? Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. I'll never forget this. My mom helps me read the equation, read the little story problem, the little scenario. She says, Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. I stopped her immediately. I said, no, 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 it's Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop with an F. That's what I said, Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. No, you said Fantastic Sam's with a V. It's Fantastic Sam's with an F. 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 So I start at nine years old giving my mom phonics lessons about how to pronounce F words, right? And we get 45 minutes into phonics lessons about Fs and Vs, and she pronounced Fs words as Vs, so we don't have friends, we have friends, right? We don't have fun, we have fun. Like my mom does this. And I learned this. I'm like, what is happening? 45 minutes go by, and we haven't even touched the math problem. 
We're talking about Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop, and that's exactly the problem with story problems, right? The whole equation was all about the import and export of surfboards, as though that matters. Simple addition and subtraction, but we're caught up on the pronunciation of fantastic, right? I tell you that story this morning, a really ridiculous example to suggest that all of us do that sort of thing all the time, right? All of us miss the heart of the matter on various issues all the time, and we get distracted by all kinds of peripheral things as though they're the point, and we can miss the heart of the matter. And we do that maybe foremost when it comes to our faith, don't we? We do that maybe foremost when it comes to our faith. We can take the heart of God and what's happening at the heartbeat of Christianity and reduce it down to things like do's and don'ts. As though the biggest thing that God is after in the world is to make us this hyper-moralistic people. Certainly moral excellencies are a part of being transformed by God. But it's not as though what he's after is giving you a long to-do list of do's and don'ts. He's after your heart. But we oftentimes reduce all of what Jesus came to do to a list of morals as though he's this moral mascot, moral policeman out to get all of us. You see it? We can reduce things. We miss the point. We can co-opt Christianity into a particular political agenda as though what Jesus came to do was to establish a political empire. When all along throughout his own ministry, he says, this, my kingdom's not of this world, but we can co-opt him as though he's now attached to a political agenda that he's our now political mascot. We miss the heart of the matter for all these particular uh, peripheral issues around the outside. The point I'm making with all of that is when you and I start to make our religious convictions more about ourselves, when we start to form standards of righteousness more by our preferences than by truth, what we do in that is we end up constructing something of our own making, calling it Christianity or something else, But it's not at all what God has brought into the world through his son Jesus. We've just constructed a faith or a system or a strategy of our own making. In our passage today, maybe I'll make more sense of this as we get into the text. We're going to get three different moments from the life of Jesus where he's going to directly confront, come into conflict with man-made religion that's calling itself religion or faith after the one true God, but it's become something else entirely because of all the trappings they put around it, missing the heart of the matter. Jesus is going to confront not just man-made religion of his day, but man-made religion and ours as well. So let's jump into the first one. Man-made religion makes the mistake of form over substance. Makes the mistake of form over substance. I'll show you in the text, verse, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So in this moment where where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders of the day, um, it was customary in Jewish life to have different fasts, different moments throughout the calendar year where they would sort of pursue God through a fast. They would abstain from food or drink or some other form of life to cultivate hunger for God, to cultivate desire for God, to say, we want to fast from this thing to feast on you. So in this moment, the religious leaders are fasting. John the Baptist, his disciples were fasting And they're asking Jesus, how come you and your disciples aren't fasting? Fasting isn't a bad thing. 
Jesus himself fasted, right, 40 days before he started his ministry. He's not opposed to fasting. He's even saying that there's coming a day when his disciples will fast again, but they're not fasting now, and they have a big problem with this. You, you have forsaken the form. You've forsaken our religious pattern right now. What, what's happening with what's going on? The people that are asking Jesus the question don't understand that the whole reason for fasting is standing right in front of them. The whole reason for fasting, cultivating desire for God, uh, developing spiritual hunger, crying out for the presence of God, they don't realize that the reason they're doing all that, the form of their religion they're so particular about, is actually now in substance, standing right in front of them. There's no need to fast. Let's feast. God is with us, Emmanuel. This is why Jesus says the whole wedding metaphor Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, they can't fast. What he's saying is if you're at a wedding and the groom is with you, that's not a time for fasting. That's not a time for sadness. That's not a time for for restraint. When you have the wedding party with you, it's a time to celebrate, isn't it? It's a time to party, not a time for restraint, a time for feasting in the presence of the groom. Jesus is saying the reason they're not fasting is because the whole point of fasting is now here. There's no need to fast anymore. And he calls himself the bridegroom, and it's not a random metaphor he brings up to respond to this question over the issue. He's picking up on language of the Old Testament where God himself refers to himself as the bridegroom of Israel and Israel his bride. This is the moment where Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has now come to redeem my bride and buy her back from her lesser and lower loves for myself. And so what they've done in this moment The man-made religion of the day has taken the forms of religion, the particulars of fasting in this case, and they've made fasting, their devotion, the point. And in the process, here's what they did. They bypassed the substance, which was relationship with the living God and enjoying his presence. His presence was no longer the point, just their devotion to the discipline. And we do this too, just to kind of set this in our lap, to kind of put some teeth on this. Most of us probably grew up, if we had a background in church, where spiritual disciplines were the epitome of your spirituality. How many times did you have your quiet time this week, right? Did you you read your Bible? Did you pray? Did you check all the boxes of the spiritual to-dos? And if you did, then you're a good Christian. If you didn't, then, then you're not, right? And it's almost as though the forms became the point and the substance, whether or not you actually interacted with God, well, but did you do all the right things? Did you do all the right things? So prayer, for example, prayer in this way ceases to become about communing with the living God and enjoying his presence, and prayer becomes more about an obligation, getting God off your back, praying the right way, saying the right things. Prayer becomes a bit like a a superstitious thing. If I can pray about it, then maybe God is my lucky rabbit's foot who will give me what I want on the other side. Instead of enjoying the presence of the living God, it becomes a form, and you miss the substance. Bible reading becomes the same way. It becomes about checking a box and doing the right thing, having read my Bible that day so hopefully I can live the right way and get the right parking spot at the grocery store, right? Instead of having an encounter with truth himself, Jesus even confronts religious leaders in his day about this view of reading the Bible. He says in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures in vain. You search the scriptures in vain because you think in them there is life. He goes, no, 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 no. 
The the scriptures are beautiful. Of course Jesus loves the scriptures. He's saying, you seek them as though they are life, but it's them that point to me. The whole point of the scriptures isn't to have this never-ending homework assignment of reading religiously. The point of the scriptures is that we'd have an encounter with Jesus by his truth and be caught up into fellowship with him. You see it. Sundays, if we just see the form, is about going to church But the substance is about being formed in the presence of God with the people of God. Giving becomes about the form. The church just wants my money. The church just wants in my pocketbook instead of the substance. That God is inviting you to a full view of worship and joining him in the mission of Jesus. And too often we can mistake the forms of religion as the point of our righteousness. I'm just doing all the right things all the right times, saying all the right things with all the right people, rather than recognizing the substance that the forms get us to, which is relationship with Jesus, the presence of the living God, who himself is our righteousness. But man-made religion mistakes the form for the substance. Jesus confronts this. The second moment we get comes as we keep reading in chapter 2, and it's around the issue of the Sabbath. Man-made religion mistakes tradition for God's word. It mistakes tradition for God's word. Let's pick up in 23. One Sabbath, he was, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need, when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. They ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are coming to him again about religious forms, but this time about a tradition, the Sabbath. right? And they're questioning him, How come you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath? And to understand this context, this situation, we've got to understand the context of Sabbath. Sabbath, as you might know, is a day of rest. And it's not new here in the New Testament. It's something that begins on the first pages of Scripture, beginning in creation. You, you know how it worked, right? God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. And it's not as though God was tired or exhausted. Man, that was difficult for six days. But it's as if, as if to say, like, after long days of work, after, after putting in a lot of time and energy into something, you step back and you look at what you've done and you enjoy it. That's what's happening on the seventh day. God steps back. It was a day of delight and celebration. Looking back at his good creation, he rested six days and then rest. You fast forward in the biblical storyline to the moment where God sets his people free from slavery in Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea. He takes them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Think Charlton Heston and the whole movie, right? He gives them the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the whole purpose is that, think about this, God was forming this people that are now his. They were ex-slaves for 400 years. All they had known was slavery. And they're now this freed people. They're not just a freed people, they're the holy people of God. And he's trying to form them now, has how to live and to shake off slavery and to embrace freedom. And so he gives them the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment invites them into his own pattern. Keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and make it holy. 
God says, I want you to do it just like I do. Work six days and rest one. And here's what's happening with the Sabbath. God is literally commanding his people not to work. He's reminding them, you're not slaves anymore, and I'm not a taskmaster. You're some total in life. The worth of what you are to me is not what you produce, but it's the fact that I love you. And so he's literally commanding them. This is a day of worship, of enjoyment, of celebration. It's even a living commandment today, a 24-hour period. The commandment of the fourth, fourth commandment, it is a command. But listen, God has to tell us this kind of a commandment because we would otherwise miss it. It's a command to enjoy life and gift and grace. It's a command, right? And this is why Jesus says, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath as though man has to keep the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for you. Rest is a gift from God made for you to delight and enjoy. But here's what happened over time. Back to this moment here in the Gospel of Mark. That's the context. The rabbis, and especially the Pharisees, they did something called building a fence around the law. So what they would do is they would take the law that God had given, and they would make all these other laws around the law to make sure you were keeping the law or to know that you weren't keeping the law. So there's all these descriptors. And they would take a command just to make sure that you would know. And so by the time the first century shows up and Jesus is on the scene, they had 39 definitions of what work was around the Sabbath law to make sure that you know you were either keeping or breaking the Sabbath law. And they got pretty ridiculous about this. So here's a few of them that they made up. You couldn't tie or untie any knots on the Sabbath. You couldn't sew more than one stitch on the Sabbath. Two stitches, man, you better have a day of fasting and repentance because God is against you. You couldn't write more than one letter on the Sabbath. Don't practice your alphabet on the Sabbath. You couldn't repair a fallen roof on the Sabbath. If your roof caved in and on the Sabbath day it was a rainstorm, you just had to sit in it until the next day. You couldn't repair a roof on the Sabbath or you were working and you were breaking it. You couldn't reset a dislocated foot or hand on the Sabbath. If you got injured the day before or on the Sabbath, you just have to sit with the pain until the next day. This is all the ways they would make sure we were keeping the Sabbath. And over time, the Pharisees, you see it, they completely lost the point. What was designed to be a blessing from God became a burden. And so what's happening, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this grain field, and they're having a snack of the grain that's given there to them, enjoying God's good creation. Nothing in the law against that. But the Pharisees were following him, trying to find something wrong with what Jesus was doing to show that he wasn't the one who was bringing the kingdom of God because he was opposing all of their man-made religion. But notice his response to them in verse 25. Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry, he was with those who were with him. He entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. When Jesus responds this way to their attack, it's a brilliant response. He's saying, have you never read as though the Pharisees hadn't read? Of course they had. They were the Pharisees. But he references this story of King David when he was running for his life from Saul and how he fed himself and his men from the holy bread in the tabernacle that was only good for the priests to eat. And he was justified in doing so. Why? Because David was the rightful king priest over God's people. But here's what's amazing about this response. When Jesus 
tells this story to justify his actions and his disciples of taking grain and having a snack on the Sabbath, he's making a direct connection between himself and King David, and the Pharisees would have known what he meant when he did that. Every good Jew knew that God's promise was to raise up a son of David, one who would become king over them to crush the enemies of God's people and to bring salvation. And so with this specific response, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of David. I'm the one you've been praying for. I'm the one that you've been longing for. I'm the one you've been looking for. Don't talk to me about the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) You see it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. They had taken their tradition and they set it above God's word and tried to attack the one who had set the whole thing in motion in the first place. This happens for us too. We set tradition over God's word when we do things like make our preferences the point. We make our preferences the point. So we say things like, this is how things have always been done around here. This is just how things ought to be done. And we start to judge people by whether or not they agree with us. And we'll extend love and mercy to people whether or not we believe that they're on our team and they want to play by our rules. Maybe more specifically, this happens most acutely around the issue of politics. It happens around the issue of politics. Do you know this last year, families have been ripped apart. Our nation is polarized. Friends who have been lifelong friends literally aren't even friends anymore. They don't even have conversations because they're standing on different sides of political issues. And maybe the way to say it about setting tradition above God's word, when you co-opt your tradition as though it's God's word, when the mission of Jesus is interrupted, when grace and reconciliation and hospitality and kindness and gentleness are no longer extended, when the mission of Jesus is interrupted because of politics, you now have just revealed what you're truly worshiping. When the mission of Jesus can no longer be extended because of a political argument, you've now just exposed who your true king is. You've set tradition above God's word. Jesus confronts man-made religion. He confronts it when we accept form over substance, when we accept tradition over his word. And then here's the last one, the big finish today. Man-made religion mistakes self-righteousness for righteousness. It mistakes self-righteousness for righteousness. Here's the passage in chapter 3. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, whether or not he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? The answer seems obvious, doesn't it? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately. They held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the Pharisees were still hunting Jesus on the Sabbath. This is a different occasion. Whether or not he would heal a man. Remember their extra tradition on the Sabbath? You couldn't reset a dislocated hand or foot, right? So now they have a problem. Is Jesus going to heal this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath? God forbid, right? So Jesus poses this question to them just to expose the irony of their sad self-righteousness. 
Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? The answer is pretty obvious. Do good. Don't do, do harm ever, right? But then on the Sabbath, like, do good. He was exposing his intentions to heal the man, a good thing. But then he asks a second question. On the Sabbath, is it lawful to save a life or to kill? Well, clearly save a life. But in that question, he was exposing their intentions to kill him. You see it? And the sad irony of all this is that the Pharisees were so lost in their own self-righteousness that they were looking to Jesus to accuse him as that it was wrong to heal a man on the Sabbath, but it's okay for them to plot as how to kill him. So it was wrong for Jesus to heal a man, but it's okay for them to plot as how to take his life out and murder him. They were lost in their own self-righteousness and blinded. Self-righteousness is a danger for all of us, isn't it? And here's the danger of self-righteousness. No one thinks it's them, (laughs) right? Someone else is always the self-righteous person. You're always the righteous one able to see everyone else's self-righteousness. No one outs themselves. No one is even in here as I'm talking about it going, yeah, that's me, dude. I'm self-righteous, right? Everyone's thinking of someone else or their spouse sitting next to them. (laughs) And that's precisely the snare of self-righteousness. It's always somebody else. Maybe a few diagnostics to help us here. Is there anyone in your life that you find yourself being nitpicky about? Anyone that you just, every little thing that they do, you've got something to say. Do you find yourself regularly comparing yourself to other people, whether positively or negatively? On the positive end, you see yourself as better than someone else. On the negative end, you don't see yourself as good as someone else, and so you feel bad about yourself. Both are focused on self, and both are trying to justify in some way. Self-righteousness. Is there a person, or is there a group of people, a type of people, that you find it easy to just to write off, dismiss? A group of people that, or a type of person that you find it easy just to cut off as not worth it? Self-righteousness. Here's the last one. Do you find it difficult to identify sin in your life? Do you find it difficult to identify sin in your life And if it's exposed, you find it difficult to repent, and instead you'd rather justify or explain yourself. I don't want to repent of that. I just want to explain why I would do that and why it's okay. Why, well, for me, I I, I get what you're saying, but for me, it's this way. Do you find it difficult to identify sin? And if it's identified, rather than repent, you'd rather explain the, the point Mark is making in all these three pictures of Jesus exposing and confronting man-made religion is that he wants us to see that everything hangs on this man, Jesus. Everything hangs on Jesus. It's not politics. It's not philosophies. It's not morals. It's not traditions. It's not forms. It's not self-righteousness. It's Jesus. Everything hangs on him. The kingdom of God hangs on him. You've got to deal with this man. Don't distract from this man with your political ideas. Don't distract from this man with your philosophies of life. Don't distract from this man with your moral achievements. Don't distract from this man with your forms of traditions. Deal with this man, Jesus the Christ. Mark is trying to show us it all hangs on him. Lay down your forms of religion to accept again the substance of relationship with Jesus. 
Maybe you're devout, but your heart is dead. Lay down your traditions and your preferences to be formed by truth himself. Lay down your supposed righteousness for true righteousness. This is the invitation of the passage. You see it? The last words of chapter 3 says, they sought as how to destroy him. Man-made religion, if you take self-righteousness to its fullest extent, it will do anything to get rid of anything that calls it out. They sought to destroy him. We don't know what to do with him. He exposes us. You see it? The greatest act, here's the mystery of God. The greatest act, the grossest, the most destructive act of self-righteousness, God turned to purchase true righteousness for any who would come. They sought to destroy him, yet his destruction purchased righteousness for any who would look to him. So I'll end with the hymn that says it this way, that teaches us that it all centers on Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, not tradition, not form, not self-righteousness. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll overcome, not my devotion, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home, not my religious forms, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, this I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.